This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Friday, July 2nd, 2021. I'm Jason Breifel from Shaw, Bransford & Roth. Today we're discussing change management with true leaders in this space. First, let me welcome John Cotter, Chairman of Cotter. Regarded by many as the authority on leadership and change, John P. Cotter is a best-selling author, award-winning business and management thought leader, business entrepreneur, and Harvard professor. His ideas, books, and company, Cotter, help mobilize people around the world to better lead organizations in an era of increasingly rapid change. He has a new book on that topic out that we'll, I'm sure, talk about today. Welcome, John. Thanks so much for being here with us on Fed Talk. It is my pleasure, Jason. Also joining us from the Cotter team is his affiliate, Gaurav Gupta. Gaurav is a passion for translating strategy into successful implementation for developing learning-focused teams. He's worked with clients in industries as diverse as food and beverage, oil and energy, healthcare, chemicals, and finance, many of those functions we have within our federal government. Gaurav draws on his experience uh, globally, having worked in over 10 different countries, and diverse functional experience collaborating with business leaders to develop and implement effective transformation efforts. Welcome to FedDoc, Gaurav. Thanks, Jason. I'm very happy to be here. And before, in our first segment of the show, we're going to uh, introduce our guests a bit more and uh, set up our conversation. Uh, we'll talk about how agencies are moving from surviving to thriving. In the second half of the show, we'll, we'll break down considerations for leaders thinking about guiding their workforce through changing conditions, including how they may consider their return to work plans and future of work plans. And finally, we'll wrap up this discussion helping leaders think through creating a culture that values change and modern thinking with widespread employee buy-in. Um, that's what we're going to do today. Before we dive into our conversation, I wanted to remind our listeners that FedTalk is brought to you by the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program. The program is sponsored by the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, insured by John Hancock Life and Health Insurance Company under a group long-term care insurance policy, and administered by Long-Term Care Partners doing business as FedPoint. To learn more, visit them at www.ltcfeds.com today. With that out of the way, again, John, Gaurav, thank you so much for, for being here today. Um, I gave a brief introduction for each of you, but I, you know, if, if, our folk, if our folks haven't heard of Cotter, if they're not familiar with, with your work, uh, John, you know, can you kind of set the stage for us a little bit on what you've been focused on these past decades in your career, uh, writing about change, uh, looking at these topics? My uh, original interest, and it remains so still today, is on performance. Why is it that some uh, executives, managers, professionals, and more importantly, organizations perform so much better than others? Um, my doctoral thesis, even though it was done at Harvard Business School, was of big city mayors. It was of city government in the 1960s, which was an incredibly turbulent period um, in our history. And uh, in retrospect, and I saw that to some degree back then, but in retrospect, uh, the difference, what is most striking to me is the difference between the impact of the best performing mayors and the worst performing mayors, the difference was galactic. It wasn't a matter of the best got A's and the worst got C minuses. It was more like A plus plus versus Z minus. And it raises the question of, given that the world and our country has lots of challenges, 
if we could take a lot of those uh, in between organizations that are uh, using that same uh, analog uh, M's and N's and move them up to B's and take some of the A minuses and make them A pluses, it would literally have an impact on millions and millions and millions of lives. And this is a big deal. So that motivates me. Uh, uh, the uh, focus uh, quickly in my research uh, went to the question of leadership because what the high performing mayors were doing much more though so than the low performing was um, actually providing leadership. Uh, they were better managers too, but that wasn't the big difference. It was leadership. And the topic of leadership took me to the question of change because what leaders throughout history have done has either they have uh, taken over during a period of turbulent change and made things, mobilize people to make things for the better when they could have been catastrophic, or they have helped initiate change in a period that wasn't changing, but the same thing, mobilize people to create results that were much better. And uh, the research program, which started at Harvard Business School and then has continued to this company that I co-founded, that's uh, trying to be the, the leading management consulting firm that deals with change in the world. Um, that research is the longest series of studies uh, in this regard uh, of anyone that at least we have encountered in academia or outside of academia in the world. And it's becoming more and more fun and interesting because of course the world is changing faster and faster and faster. And anybody who was in denial on that only has to reflect on the last year. And in particular, reflect on uh, March and April of 2020. Uh, those kinds of blips are going to happen more often in the future. The data is overwhelmingly clear on that. And we've got to get better at handling it because it will make a difference to millions and millions and millions of people. Thanks so much, Don. And, you know, I think you're right. And a word that jumps out to me is resilience. If things are changing faster and faster, resilience seems like that, that key characteristic skill set for those leaders, for those managers to cultivate so they can navigate their organizations through these things. And I know in the pandemic, we, we heard that organizations jumped forward, you know, 20 years or so in time in terms of change efforts in, in less than, than a, a year or so. And um, Gaurav, I wanted to, to bring you into this conversation. What are you seeing out there with organizations and, and particularly how leaders and, and those organizations are thinking about how to navigate this really rapid, constant changing environment? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think this uh, pandemic is the first time that leaders all across the board are feeling this changing environment in a way that has been going on for a little while. And as, you know, as John was sort of talking about, we've certainly been seeing this for a while, but it hasn't felt so intuitive. It hasn't felt so obvious. And, and, and so I think you're trying to see now, you know, while in the past there might have been a few leaders or a few kinds of industries um, that, that, that were maybe, you know, reacting to the space of change and were trying to develop organizations that could respond and could react fast enough. Uh, I think we're seeing a lot more uh, leaders and organizations now awakening to the realization that uh, change is not something that's going to go away. The space of change is, you know, it's only going to continue to accelerate. Um, you know, the data suggests clearly that while the pandemic has been a, a, a serious blip in terms of how how extreme it's been and, and, and the kinds of change that it's required, uh, it's, not, it's not anomalous. Uh, change has been, has been increasing and the pace of change has been increasing for a while. So certainly we're seeing a lot more people starting to pay attention to this and starting to pay attention to how do I create an organization uh, that can react faster? How do I create an organization that's more adaptable, that's able to pivot quicker, uh, that's more agile, uh, that's able to, you know, both both react quicker, but also be more proactive about uh, addressing change and be more proactive about, um, you know, creating the sort of environment within which people can respond and within which people can uh, more effectively help the organization change. 
thanks Gaurav for those remarks. And you know, what it sounds like is this, there's this realization that everyone's in the boat at the same time. And we see that we're all in the same boat dealing with this change perhaps in, in a different way. It's not just some part of the organization and one individual's job to figure that out. Um, we're all in this together. And, and I think that that um, presents a lot of interesting opportunities for us to, to learn and share from each other uh, how we're navigating that, what's going on, and, and probably at the end of the day, maybe there's less differences in government than in other sectors than we previously have focused on, and we're going to unpack that. Uh, we've got to pause here for our first break. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We're here with John Cotter and Gaurav Gupta discussing change management. And before the break, we're talking about how organizations across the world and across the country are going through uh, similar transitions and dealing with uh, a changing world and environment around them. And, um, you know, federal agencies have been uh, directed to put together their, their return to work plans and they're thinking hard about the future of work. And so, you know, John, I want to come back to you, you know, what are some things mm-hmm. for agencies to be thinking about as they're, they're entering this space, putting those plans together and, uh, and trying to navigate this environment? Well, number one, nobody, I repeat, nobody should be putting together a going back to work plan. They should be putting together a going back to work better plan. Um, that's not a semantic game I'm playing with you. The, the, the situation has changed. Uh, there are, everybody has learned something in the last uh, 14 months. Uh, it's hard to find an organization that isn't doing something today that they didn't do before. And uh, making the assumption that as they, quote, go back to work, they will just automatically continue to do that is a bad assumption. The past has a very strong pull on all of us through culture and policies and bureaucracy and everything else. So one thing is to identify what you're doing better now and make it a priority that you don't lose that. Conversely, people have stopped doing some things out of necessity, usually not out of clever design and have discovered that not doing them actually is better. It uh, added no value before. It just costs money or stress or whatever. Those things can also um, uh, creep, creep back in the old way that uh, wasted money and added stress. So identify those and make sure that you don't let them come back in. And in general, think about opportunity. Think of this as a interesting, not uh, entirely normal opportunity to make other shifts that will help you to serve your mission the way you want it served in a what will be inevitably the data is overwhelming and increasingly rapidly moving volatile uncertain world you know jason the the one thing i would just add to that is uh i think one of the things that uh history has shown is that we're extremely bad at predicting what changes are coming and there's been a couple of uh, organizations in the last few weeks that have made you know or actually in the last few months have made some big announcements about how they're going to return to the to the office and then some of them have actually backtracked on that um, because the data has changed, right? The data around uh, productivity, around innovation, collaboration, et cetera, has changed over the, over the months as the, as the pandemic has progressed. So I think the other piece of it is recognizing that our ability to predict what even one month or two months or three months out is going to look like is not as great as we think it is. And so 
being ready to change plans when, when you have to and being ready to uh, not just stick to a path that you maybe announced six months ago when the, when the reality on the ground was a bit different uh, is something else for leaders to be aware of. And also in terms of how you message that, then uh, not messaging it as you know, a, a decision that may never change because it, you might have to change it. And then, uh, and then you sort of end up looking like you're backtracking as opposed to you're pivoting and adapting and, and reacting to a very much evolving situation. Yeah, I like I like both of these notions that that John and Gaurav brought forward. Kind of uh, going back better. We're not doing the same thing as as we did in the past. And you know, my observation in the government is that a lot of the kind of needless bureaucracy and maybe some of those extraneous meetings have been cut out because folks have focused on getting the mission done. And 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 that brings in kind of the point that you made, Gaurav, around kind of agile practices and looking at the data, looking at the information and, and pivoting. And it's not embarrassing. It's not a bad thing to pivot. It's reality. The world is changing around us. And I guess a question that comes to mind for me, particularly for a government audience that often spends years making complex strategic plans, things like that, where, can that, where should that process start? You know, is that on, on a manager, on a leader? Is that the agency head? You know, how do you, how do you align these things? Because there's a lot of movement going on and people are navigating this individually and organizationally. I suppose in, a, in an ideal world, which by the way, does not exist, it would start with the more, most powerful person in the group and kind of go down. Uh, but in the real world, where I've seen it uh, work best is it can it can literally start, or at least some initial initiative can come from anywhere. And if it catches other people's attention because it gets some results, they see, oh, this is better. This is a smarter way to operate. It can, and that gets communicated, and the people who uh, uh, provided the initiative get uh, a little pat on the back, uh, it can grow and it can grow upwards as well as downwards. It can grow sideways as well as uh, downwards. And uh, so it's more organic than it is a kind of mechanistic engineered way of doing things. And that fits in a, in a rapidly uh, evolving world, the more rapid, the more you tend to find the winners, the people who really do a great job on their mission, get that agility by more organic means, if you will, and less mechanistic, mechanical means. Jason, in your question, I think is another, another interesting aspect to sort of explore, which is, you know, you talked about these long-term strategic plans and you're absolutely right, particularly in the, you know, in the Fed space, um, it tends to even be longer than, than a lot of other businesses and industries. And the challenge, of course, is that as we're talking about pace of change and we're talking about how fast things are moving, uh, how, how do you, when you have long-term strategic plans in place, how do you create that agility and maintain it? And I think one of the keys is upfront understanding what are the assumptions upon which you're building your strategic plan? Because at least from, from my experience, what I've often seen is, is, you know, there are certain assumptions that are baked into the plan that you've, that you've built uh, as, as leaders, you don't deliberately think about what those assumptions are. And so when those change, uh, it's hard to change your plan because you haven't actually articulated what those assumptions are that you're basing your, your decisions on. So going back to our previous conversation about, uh, you know, this move back to the office, if your assumption is, um, you know, that the, the pandemic is going to last a couple of months and then we're going to have, have vaccines rolled out very fast uh, and we're not going to have extra variants crop up, uh, you might have a different plan them in the situation that, that, that panned out or that we're in now. And so I think that's the other critical piece of these, of these long-term plans and is, is understanding what assumptions they're built on so that when those shift, you're in a better position to actually be able to shift your, your strategy and your plan. I want to just pull this thread a bit more, Gaurav. Um, do organizations or leaders need to write those assumptions down? Do they need to say them out loud? You know, is there a process uh, by which organizations can identify those things? Because I think sometimes it's kind of latent and, and people may have their own thoughts on it. But if you don't 
make sure, particularly if you're in a large bureaucracy, a large department, if everyone's not on the same page and you don't level set and check that, uh, people could be moving out in different directions based on their own personally held assumptions. So I'm just curious if there's a tool or some way for folks to, to work through that. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things John's written quite a bit about is this idea of starting from an opportunity, right? Starting from clarity around what is the opportunity that you're trying to capture. And, and the more you can actually write that down and, and not just write it down, but communicate it in various different ways. So the change is very clearly tied to a benefit that you're trying to achieve. Uh, and, and along with that, there's, there's an explanation of, you know, why, why is now a good time uh, to go after this? Why is uh, why is this the right group or organization or, or, or department to be able to, to make this change effective? Uh, the more you elaborate that, uh, the more windows, you know, they, because those, are, those have the assumptions baked into them, right? When you, when you say this is why we want to do this, uh, you are kind of articulating the assumptions behind it. And so uh, absolutely being deliberate about it and articulating it and writing it down, communicating it, uh, talking about it constantly, uh, so that it's not just up to the leaders to uh, identify when some of that has shifted, but also, you know, as John was talking about sort of the, the idea of it starts in different places or ideas can spark anywhere in the organization, the more people understand the why behind it, the more someone can say, hey, hang on a second, we were doing this because of X, Y, and Z. Uh, however, what I'm seeing out, you know, where I am is X, Y, and Z isn't true anymore, right? So the more people understand it, the more they're able to flag when there's a need to, when there's a need to change and pivot. And there's a huge difference when, when if uh, I suddenly am following a strategic plan as a middle manager and all of a sudden I get this new directive, nope, we're not doing that anymore, we're doing this. And I'm left to wonder, oh, you know, what the heck is happening up there now and can make bad uh, or nefarious assumptions. And that versus, I see it, first because I have some clarity of the basis of the current plan, the opportunities that we were assuming would really propel us. And I can see, or even if I don't have the direct data, when I get the new uh, pivot, uh, it's just logical. And I say, oh, of course, good. So my attitude is positive as opposed to questioning suspicious and negative, which of course makes all the difference in the world. And I wanted to follow up. You mentioned the word data, John, and that, that kind of set up a flare for me because the accessibility of data, the quality of data that's informing what's going on and whether that middle manager has the same data that the front office and the C-suite has. How does that play into decision-making, you know, how much of this is, should be as organizations are, are, are charting their path forward, should be, can be data-driven versus you're just looking on, looking over the horizon and seeing what's going on out there in the world and, and trying to make the best decisions you can. Well, you need to do both, obviously. Uh, you need to have people be alert all the time on the question of what is changing that's affecting um, our results, uh, but there are cases where sharing more data probably is prudent these days because you need more people reacting and not just uh, standing by waiting for orders. Um, but that varies depending upon the details of the context, obviously. I really think that that's an important point and uh, makes me think of an article that uh, Linda Miller, who uh, was the deputy director for the uh, pandemic response committee, overseeing all the IGs working on, on, on all the support that the government has put out in the trillion dollars um, going into the economy to, to combat the pandemic. And one of her big observations was this availability and sharing of data within and across government organizations as a real barrier to making to a fit more effective decision making and kind of uh, uh, limiting some of that agility that that I think policymakers were hoping to see out of the government. And again, maybe that's hopefully that is one of those opportunity areas that 
that uh, all the organizations and particularly government can, can act upon um, to, to close that gap. I think you're right. Absolutely. Big opportunity. We have to stop here for our second break. We'll continue our discussion after a word from our sponsors. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We're entering the second half of our show with John Cotter and Gaurav Gupta. And we're, I had a question that I wanted to, to bring up in our conversation. We've talked a lot about the role of managers and leaders in driving change and navigating it through their organizations. But, you know, we also have lots of frontline employees. And, and I wanted to, to bring them into this discussion um, and, and kind of get your thoughts, um, both, both John and Garav, on how much should we be listening to, to those frontline employees? What are ways to, to bring their, their viewpoints and considerations to the tables? And um, how can managers and leaders uh, take those inputs into the work that they're doing as, as they chart, chart the path forward for their organizations? And, and maybe, Garav, we'll, we'll kick this over to you first. Sure. You know, I think that the first piece of that is for leaders to, to recognize the importance of it and for leaders to be looking to create that environment. And when I, you know, I say leaders right now, I'm actually using it as a, as a positional term, right? I'm using it as the people at the top of the organization uh, because they hold the authority. Uh, one of the things we talk a lot about is uh, leadership is more a behavior than it is a position. Now, what do I mean by leaders need to be, need to be aware of that and, and actually be looking for it? I think it comes down to um, you know, in a, in a slow enough moving world, you could have three or four people at the top of the organization or 20 or 30 in a larger organization uh, be making all the decisions and, and, and you'd be okay, right? They, they, they have enough information, they're able to process that information and they can make decisions uh, fast enough. However, in, in a world where things are changing faster, where there's greater uncertainty, where there's greater unpredictability, you actually need the front line, right? You need the folks all across the organization to be uh, identifying threats that might be, might be coming towards the organization or opportunities that you can take advantage of, problems that you need to solve. And so for, for, for leaders, I think the first step is recognizing uh, the need for uh, more leadership as a behavior from people all across the organization, right? More people across the organization looking out for the things that need to change, looking out for the ways that they need to react, looking out for the things that need to be done differently, and then, and then bubbling up those ideas and, and ensuring that there's, that there's both information flow, but also enough, uh, enough autonomy for people to actually take some action and, and make, some, make some changes. Because you, you can't do it with the old model of 15 or 20 people at most in an organization doing that. You need a lot more people uh, playing that role of, of, of leadership. Right? That's a big change for government, huh, John? It's huge. It's huge for any large organization. It's huge for any medium to large organization. But the clarity around the research on this is, I mean, 100%. If you look at the faster moving environments around us today, and the winners, the people who are really doing something special in those environments, be it public, private, nonprofit, uh, the single thing that they do that stands out visibly that is different from their peers is they get more leadership from more people on a regular basis, no matter where they are in the hierarchy. 
It's an expectation. Uh, the best ones bake it into their culture. And for all the reasons that Gaurav uh, just gave, it logically, logically produces better results. I want to pull the thread on this because, you know, this is kind of the transition. We're trying to help the government transition from this, I, I kind of characterize as a bureaucratic mindset to a professional mindset. You're empowering employees at all levels to identify areas for improvement and to bring those ideas forward wherever they can. Um, and that's, that's certainly been articulated in some of the guidance that has come out from the Biden-Harris administration to agencies as they think about these things, pushing decision-making down uh, as low within organizations as they can. But it is a real sea change and, and culture is, is, is probably one of those biggest elements of that. So what are some thoughts? And, you know, I, I think we'll talk about this a bunch more throughout this discussion here, kind of how do you drive that pivot in culture? How do we empower and, and drive that change in organizations, particularly, you know, kind of in this government context where we may be asking people to lead in a way that they might not have been used to uh, or the culture didn't support perhaps in the past? There is pretty clear evidence of what produces culture change and why it doesn't work most of the time. And it's useful to start with what doesn't work, I think. What doesn't work is you appoint a few smart people to sit around and design your new culture. They have a flip chart or a whiteboard and or they hire a smart consultant who tells them this is what a brilliant culture looks like. And then they turn it over to the marketing people or the communications people who cascade or the training people who cascade this message down the hierarchy. And uh, it doesn't work because that isn't the way that cultures naturally change among human groups of people. They naturally change when some people start doing things differently. Those different actions actually produce results that others see as better. Those results are communicated and celebrated, which inevitably brings a few more people into the, uh, uh, the new behavior zone, if you will, who will try a few new things if they start getting results and they're communicated and they're celebrated, you get this virtuous cycle going, which at first starts to change how people think. Then it starts to change individual habits. Then it starts to change uh, group habits, which is basically what, what culture is all about. And it doesn't matter, it doesn't have to be uh, everybody changing at once. Uh, it doesn't, uh, the reality of uh, innovative change in particular, we know, uh, goes from a small group of people to a larger group of people to a larger group of people still. That's, that's fine. It's not as pre-programmed. It's more organic. That's life. You know, specifically to this question of culture of empowerment, I think what John's talking about is even more relevant, right? Because, because for, for, for a head of an agency or, 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 you know, anyone in an authority position to say, look, we're now going to empower people to act differently, doesn't really mean a whole lot if the actions and the behaviors all through the, the hierarchy don't change as well. Because I think where people do run into obstacles sometimes is they are folks in the organization um, who will see that as a threat, right? Because for them, the way they have been successful in their career so far is following a certain path. And, and, and you know, and, and, and they've, they've learned to make decisions in certain ways. They've learned to act in certain ways where they now have a bit of control, where they now have some authority. And, and a culture of empowerment does mean giving up some of that, right? A culture of empowerment does mean that certain individuals in the organization, particularly those who at the moment have power and control, have to give some of that up. And so especially when we're talking about this question of how do you create a culture that, that does encourage more, more empowered autonomous action, it's even more relevant to, uh, to start with this idea of how do you create pockets where people can start to behave differently, where there's different actions being taken, 
where people then can look at it and see, all right, that's driving better results. That's creating, you know, the sort of environment that we want. I can see how people are behaving differently. And then you sort of grow it from there as opposed to trying to, you know, snap your fingers and, and overnight or over a few weeks uh, change the culture of, of, of a larger organization, which never really works. And, you know, this, this notion of allowing this, to, this uh, transition to occur organically, you know, kind of you, you, you let your pockets, you let your leaders do this, and then hopefully it, it, it kind of scales individually to their teams, to the broader organizations, makes a lot of sense to me. But it also, I, I'm curious about your thoughts. Certainly in the federal government, we have uh, lots of political leaders. You know, the average tenure is, is 18 months or two years or so. Um, and, you know, four, four years, if, if you're lucky, how does that dynamic play into, um, you know, this change and, and, and can that enable or limit kind of how far these pockets of, of innovation or change can, can move forward? Gaurav. Yeah, you know, I, it's, a, it's, it's certainly an interesting question in, in sort of the, the, this constant change where before eight years for sure, if not sooner, there's, you know, often change in direction as well and change in policy as well. And I think one of the things for agency heads of the career, uh, the career folks in the agencies is to focus more on the sort of the, 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 the end stakeholders, right? The folks who you're trying to impact and focus more on uh, rather than what is, the, what is the current policy? Because, you know, at the end of the day, I think there are very there are many different policies that try to get to the same end, right? That get to the same end of how do you help stakeholders if you're HHS? How do you help uh, people in sort of a, from a healthcare perspective if you're if you're FEMA? How do you how do you help people in emergencies? And, and focusing your how you talk about uh, the mission and how you talk about the opportunities and how you talk about the change and the direction that you're that you're going in on the eventual stakeholders, on the people who will be impacted in the end and connecting it to that so that when there is policy change or when you know, things do, do move, it doesn't feel so much like a, like a massive sort of shift from, from one, one thing to another because you're more focused on the outcomes you're trying to drive and less on the exact path that you're trying to take to get there. Uh, so I think that's, that it's a unique aspect in, in, in sort of the, the government space that, that businesses don't normally see as much although to some extent you do as well, because, you know, changes in CEO tenures are also, CEO tenures are also fairly short these days. So you do see something, something similar there as well. That's an ex excellent point. And, and I think uh, psychologically, most people find it much more meaningful to pay attention to the people they're serving and uh, as opposed to worrying about and always looking upward at their changing bosses, the latter is, can be just depressing. Whereas the former can give some meaning to work and meaning to your job. I think that that's a, a really powerful point, John. And again, most people are in public service because they wanna serve the public. They wanna serve right. their agency's mission and focus on those outcomes. And yes, you've got to navigate the bureaucracy to do your job and move your career, but, but most people are in it for those external facing, citizen facing or, or, or taxpayer facing service, but it, it can be tricky. Um, you know, uh, one question that I wanted to ask before we wrap up this, this segment is, are resources funding necessary for, for driving these, these change efforts or are, are there ways that, uh, that leaders can, can kind of bootstrap this absent a, a big investment and a big pile of cash? What we have found again and again is that some of the most amazing success stories of transformational change were not driven by resource big resource allocation decisions. They were driven by people uh, stopping wasting time on irrelevant things and, and applying it with more enthusiasm towards something that's important. Uh, that made much more difference than just throwing dollars at something. Not the dollars, for example, with respect to digital aren't necessary uh, for hardware or software. That's not the point. It's just uh, 
too often money becomes an easy excuse. I think that that's a, a great point. And I do think that that is something that we have seen a lot of evidence of throughout this pandemic is that folks have realized that some of those things that they might have been doing in the past were not particularly helpful, were not the best use of resources. And so they focused on doing what needs to be done to deliver those outcomes for, 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 for whoever that, that, that agency or that organization um, is serving. Um, we have to pause here for our last break, and then we'll enter our last segment of our discussion. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We're entering the last segment of the show uh, with John Cotter and Gaurav Gupta. We've been talking about change in, in a crazy moving environment and fast moving world. And before the break, uh, something really interesting was mentioned about the connection between resources, change, you know, threats and opportunity and, and how organizations can navigate that. And and a point that was made that I think is, is really important for agencies to think about um, is this notion that resources might not be necessarily the primary driver for, for, for change or for organizations thinking about how to come back and do their work better. And I'm hoping, Gaurav, you can unpack that a bit more for us. Sure, Jason. You know, John was talking about before the break resources uh, in, in the sense of, yes, there might be some financial investment required in some of these types of change, but that's not generally the, the limiting factor. And I just want to talk a little bit about resources from the standpoint of people resources, because uh, often I think when people start to think about change or they or they want to do something, they want to do something transformative. Uh, the first obstacle is, well, we don't, have the, we don't have the people to do it. We don't have the resources throughout this because everybody's already, already at, their, at their max capacity. And what we found again and again is that when you connect the change to something that's meaningful to people, and when it comes from a place not of solving a problem or facing a threat, but rather from the place of seizing an opportunity, uh, doing something that, that advances the purpose and the mission of the organization, you don't need extra resources because people willingly engage with that. People will volunteer. And, and you know, we've seen examples of people volunteering their, their time on weekends. We've seen examples of people volunteering their time late into the evening because they are so excited by the, by the changes that you're trying to drive. And so often that the, the biggest or the, or the best transformations, the most effective transformations come from uh, connecting people to something that's meaningful to them, that's opportunity focused, that's forward looking, where they're willing to um, almost volunteer their time and, and, and not just time, but their energies to it as well. And so you don't actually need more resources, at least from the people aspect of it, uh, to, make these, to make these changes. And it's interesting, uh, in writing this latest book of ours, uh, which has a main title of Change and just came out a couple of weeks ago, one of the things we did is an intensive look at what the brain science people are learning about human nature that is practically important, not to medical people, but to folks like us uh, who are trying to make organizations better. And we concluded that there are uh, some things that are enormously important. And it starts with the fact that human beings have as a very powerful and central mechanism within themselves, a kind of an instinct to survive. It's probably associated with why we're still around uh, as opposed to 99% of other creatures that have existed at one time or another. Uh, it's as if we've got a radar system inside of us that is looking for threats all the time. It's not conscious, it just happens. And when it perceives something that it thinks is a threat, it sends out chemical signals, which increases uh, uh, blood flow to muscles, which uh, puts us in uh, anxious or angry or an, uh, a heightened state of, of wanting to move, do something, avoid the threat. 
our thinking uh, uh, focuses like a laser beam on that threat. And when things work well, uh, we do something. We, you know, the saber-toothed tiger comes along. We run up a tree. It all happens in a very short period of time. We calm down as the saber tooth gets bored with us and can't climb trees, and all is well. Uh, we systematically underestimate how much of our behavior is driven by that system today. And today it's less physical threats than it's psychological threats, it's economic threats, it's, it's ego threats, it's career threats. And what can happen also easily is uh, in this very noisy world with lots of things going on that are difficult, that sound scary, is we can go into a panic zone. And when we do unconsciously go into a panic zone, it just shuts down our capacity to be creative, to be innovative, to be proactive in trying to solve uh, a change problem. Um, and on the other side, we've all got built into us a less powerful, but nevertheless more important mechanism that uh, is one might say is, is thrive oriented, not survive oriented. It looks for opportunities. Uh, when it sees opportunities, it sends out chemicals too that raise our, our uh, energy level, uh, that excite us, that make us feel a certain passion. And as long as we take action and start getting feedback that we're getting results that actually show this is not a false or fantasy opportunity, that energy level, unlike survive level, can stay up for months, for years. Survive stuff comes and goes pretty quickly or we burn out. And it's for these underlying medical, human, living, you know, biochemical dynamics that we say opportunity is so important in the rapidly changing world where we need to uh, gin up uh, a lot of action from a lot of people that looks more like leadership to be able to pivot our organizations and make them thrive. This, this notion of, you know, opportunity and the energy that comes with that as being more, more sustaining, but, but kind of the fight or flight, natural human instincts, uh, um, you know, undermining that constantly, you know, what, what comes to mind to me is, you know, the, the growing, challenges we see in society uh, and globally with mental health and other issues as mm -hmm. as individuals and organizations are seeking to strike that balance and help their their employees and the organizations be be more resilient and navigating that change and you know curious kind of um and, and you may get into this in this book and you know are there any strategies tools ways that individual leaders or organizations can can think about cultivating that, that opportunity and positive energy side um, as the organizations are looking toward the future? Yeah, there are lots of ways, but it all starts with a realistic understanding of how we as human beings are built, if you will, and not making cynical assumptions or just incorrect uh, assumptions about kind of the core unconscious mechanisms that drive behavior. And the name of the game, starting with yourself, before you even go out to others, is to keep survive uh, a lot activated, but not let it overheat, and to focus on opportunity uh, to rev up your thrive uh, mechanism, first in yourself, and then in more and more people as you achieve things and you communicate about uh, those uh, successes. The, the, the world is filled with humans and organizations that have too much going on on the survive side and too little going on on the thrive side. And with just a minimal understanding, you don't need to understand brain science, <laughs> of those dynamics, you can make decisions as a leader uh, on an ongoing minute by minute daily basis that help you 
um, better deal with a more rapidly changing world. And that's true in the private sector and for sure for the federal government. And as a citizen, the payoff, frankly, can be, in my judgment, bigger uh, for people who are helping us do this well in the federal government. You know, just to just to build on the on that point, um, because of what John said, most organizations today are sort of in this position where the amount of survive triggers, the amounts of threats that people are facing are are greater than what is what is healthy, right? Are greater than a situation where we're resolving the problems and moving on, but are at this point where it's actually almost paralyzing. For, for organizations, I think one of the key questions becomes, what tactics can you use to mitigate some of that, that survive activation? And, there's a, and it's a lot of what we've actually been talking about throughout this, this conversation, right? It's, it's things like providing people with, uh, with transparency on, on what actions are being taken or where the organization is going and not limiting the information and the data to a few people, but actually sharing that more broadly. Uh, it's things like creating as much reliability and consistency for people as possible so that um, you know, there, there are certain aspects that, yes, those are, the, those are the areas where we need to pivot, we need to move fast, but then these are the areas where uh, things, are, things are consistent and are not changing. And so there is that, that reliability. Uh, it's, it's, it's things like delegating some control so people actually feel like they have a voice, they have a say, they're, they're, they're part of the, of the changes that are, that are happening, and it's not things that are happening to them, but it's things that they're involved with and that they're driving. Um, so this whole conversation around empowerment and how do you create a culture where people feel empowered, all of that uh, helps create an environment within which we're not getting hit by these, these sort of survive triggers. Because the thing is, as, as John was saying earlier, it's not just physical threats, right? It's, it's anything we perceive as a threat. And there's a lot of that in organizational life. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's reports that we see. Uh, that might have some numbers that are disturbing. It's uh, threats to our ego because you know there's there's a change in the organization and now I don't have the power that I had before. And so we're we're, we're hit constantly with with these threats. And so for leaders, the question is, can I look at my processes? Can I eliminate some things that are not required anymore? Can I reduce the amount of noise in the organization? If the reports that you know we were using in the past, but they're not meaningful anymore to the conversation we had around bureaucracy earlier, are there meetings that we don't need? Anything we can do to reduce the amount of activity that is not helpful will help reduce that, reduce that activation of, of survive as well. Awesome. Well, guys, we are at the end of our program today. I want to thank Gaurav Gupta and John Cotter from Cotter Inc. for joining us today for this fantastic discussion here on Fed Talk. Get out there and check out John's new book, Change. Uh, you can find it at any of your favorite outlets. And the thing that I want to take away and leave folks with um, that, that really spoke to me from this conversation is Focus on the thrive, focus on the opportunity and, and the goodness uh, of the, the opportunity to do better for those that you're seeking to serve. Like John says, we have such an opportunity to deliver for our citizens. I really appreciate John and Gaurav joining us today. Fed Talk is brought to you by the Federal Employment Law Firm of Shaw, Bransford and Roth. I hope everyone has a wonderful and safe 4th of July weekend. We'll see you next time.